Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information (laughs) and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Hello, listeners. Brendan here with Mark, vetgurus.com, vetgurus at gmail.com. It is episode 285, Thursday, March the 9th, 2023. Now, Mark, you need to put yourself on unmute and have a chat to me. Hopefully you're there. Are you there? I am. Can you hear me, Brendan? Yes, can I can. you hear me? I think that was my fault. I did put you on mute briefly there when um, at the intro there because you were talking over Mr. Intro Man. How are you? I'm great, mate. Everything is good here. We, I was telling you before we came on here that we have had, well, I think it's getting upwards to close to a metre of rain in the last week or 10 days. So it really is living up to the wet season description, but it's all been good up here. All good. So what happens with, I mean, what, how do you cope with that? What is big, big gutters on the on the roofs? Um, do they have systems in place, or does it all just fall in a huge, big puddle? <laughs> well, it's not a puddle because it flows away. It's sort of like a, a river. giant stream, yeah. And the driveway where we access our accommodation just turns into a, um, you know, several inches of running water. And there are some puddles that persist for a day or two. And we do have um, lovely frogs' eggs and tadpoles that develop in them. And some of those get washed down into more substantial ponds of water. But, but yeah, most of them dry out. The, the soil is uh, very porous and, and, uh, and the water runs away very quickly. So, yep. Not so you don't need a, a, a canoe to paddle between your little accommodation and your office look we've got a canoe but i'm not (laughs) going to to get in it because um well there are bloody crocodiles uh around and and while i don't think there's any crocodiles between us and the driveway certainly within about a kilometer and a half of our accommodation there's a creek the laradinia creek which has a significantly sized crocodile in it and geez my paddling's not strong enough Brendan to ensure that I wouldn't be washed into the creek and then have to deal with uh large reptilians well that's one one picture I haven't seen on your postmark you need to get out there and take a few pics of the crocs um you've got plenty of pictures of birds and frogs and lizards and snakes so be safe but I'm looking forward to a pic of a croc or two do you think you can do that Oh, definitely can. And you know, you know, the other picture I've gotten, um, I was uh, wandering in a little bit of a wetland looking at, um, looking at the frogs breeding, trying to get photos of those guys. And I did come across a um, black and white stool about the size of a, uh, a football, a, a um, gridiron ball rugby league football. Which, um, which, yeah, crocodile, I trod in a crocodile poo. Well, hopefully it didn't have anything um, 
too um, dramatic inside it, Mark, that made you scared? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not so much what was in As long as I don't end up that way, Brendan, that's the key thing. <laughs> yes, a bit of DNA from Mark uh, might be found in one of them. Hopefully not. <laughs> Hopefully not. Well, I think with that um, scary thought, Mark, we might <laughs> jump into news stories, and I think you've got the first one. The Bristlebirds. Oh, we love our eastern Bristlebirds. A critically endangered species that really hasn't done well uh, generally. But then the bloody big fires, Brendan, um, of a couple of years ago really uh, got into the parts of the world that our bristlebirds are, um, you know, generally protected from the severe fires, the wet sclerophyll forests of eastern Australia. There's a couple of key locations. And... um, and yeah, those fires got in there and, and really worried ecologists that they might have wiped out the species at a number of uh, the very few locations they still exist, particularly in southeast Queensland. But what the clever buggers at the, um, at, now I can't remember where they, was it BirdLife? Yes, it is BirdLife Australia. Yes. were deploying acoustic monitors over large parts of that habitat and... Lo and behold, they they uh, they discovered the call of the bird, um, confirming its presence. Now, the key thing about this story that's really interesting and fascinates me is the fact that, and I know from from being peripheral to some research on Albert's lyrebird, very quickly with these acoustic monitors, you build up very significant amounts of data. And it can be very difficult to troll through as a human and identify, you know, if you, even if you speed the, the recordings up, 10, 10, recordings, 10 recording sites over a couple of weeks quickly turns into something that, uh, that people will, on individual basis, struggle to get through. So they now have computer programs which recognise the sound wave so we could probably deploy them on our little Zencaster app here and, and it would tell, you know, whether you were talking or I were talking, Brendan. But even more interesting, these programs, which identify the calls, learn their actual AI, which um, increases the accuracy each time they recognize a variation of the call or um, something else about the call which increases the accuracy of surveying and the wonderful thing about these surveys is that they can um they can learn a lot about the birds because the acoustic monitoring you know works over a certain distance so they can be very confident that they've got a bird within whatever it is 150 200 meters of the device and then if they have several devices, they can say, okay, we've got this bird, that bird, you know, we've, they're calling at the same time, so they can't be a bird wandering through territories. And so it's a very non-invasive and uh, yes. elegant way of surveying wild populations without interfering with them. And the AI, which allows the, the computer system which recognises the sound wave, as it develops its intelligence, but before it becomes, uh, you know, sentient and sets off the destruction of the modern world as we know it, somewhere in that gap there, 
it it becomes very good at identifying the birds and gives very very useful information and particularly that northern population of eastern bristlebirds it's very encouraging and of course they can now spend money on private land um, public land maintain it restore it and it's not wasted money because they know the birds are there brendan you're excited mark i can tell you're excited very excited well I'll stop you there and I'll talk about my giant cane toad story. This is just going to get me more excited. <laughs> Toadzilla mark has been discovered in northern Queensland, which is a giant cane toad and it's set a new world record supposedly, Mark, or at least in Queensland or Australia, 2.7 kilograms of toad, almost 6 pounds and they've nicknamed it Toadzilla. It was found by rangers in Queensland Conway National Park and gee it's an ugly looking toad. I, I, I know that's probably not politically correct or correct in any way to say it Mark but they are pretty horrible looking things aren't they the cane toads. It was found by ranger Kylie Mark traveling through the park Last week when this report was made, which was in January, I think, um, when a snake slithering across the path forced a vehicle to stop and she was confronted by the cane toad and she reached down and grabbed it and couldn't believe how big it is, Mark, and she thought it was as big as a football and that she thinks it's a female and it's there's some great photos there, isn't there, on it. It was discovered... The Queensland Museum wants it, Mark, I think, to to um, probably pickle it, I'd expect, because it was euthanized, because they are a pest species here in Australia, and it was going to be sent to the museum, so I'm sure it will be on display at some stage there. So I feel, you know. I feel very complex. I have complex yeah. feels about this, Brendan, because to get to 2.7 kilos, she's done some serious mastering of her environment, you know. She's... she's um, yeah, like it's not her fault that she's an invasive species. She's been really good at living and um and yep, we just euthanize her and file her away in the in the museum. Anyway, the the other interesting thing about this story, which yes. was in the news up here, was that when Ranger Kylie, Ranger Kylie? Yep. When Ranger Kylie she thought it was a joke being played. She thought it was a giant plastic toad that one of her colleagues had set on the edge of the road yeah. um, and she thought she was going to be the butt of some sort of prank maybe a video maybe a TikTok ranger picks up plastic toad thinking it's a real one but no toadzilla was a real thing brendan yes and the other thing that we've spoken about well certainly off air before and have been involved in the periphery about is the euthanasia of cane toads, Mark, and the mm -hmm. humane euthanasia of some of these exotic species. And, you know, the, the bottom line is the thought that, which I think is true, that we should, you know, treat all these animals with respect and provide them with a humane euthanasia, even if it's a, a, a target species that's regarded as a pest species, because um, there are some horrific well, probably TikToks out there for you, Mark, um, of, <laughs> of, of ways of euthanizing things like cane toads, which are totally inappropriate. Way And just because it's a pest species doesn't mean it should die a horrible death is, is, is sort of the general thought, isn't it? Well, it's your or my general thought. Yes. I think it's yes. a pretty um, a sound ethical basis that 
their value, whether they're invasive or not, is a human applied thing. It's no intrinsic thing about them. Yep. And and as particular, like whatever it is, well, we, we have a responsibility to make sure that uh, whatever anything has to go through, there's the least suffering possible. Yep. Well said, Mark. Well said. Well, no segue here. Let's jump into our main <laughs> story which is parasites. We're going to jump into another parasite topic here, and specifically coccidiosis in bearded dragons um, because it's a fairly common presentation worldwide as far as issues or, or potential issues. Sometimes it is an actual health issue in the bearded dragon in question. Um, oh, you've gone so there straight away. You can chat a little bit about that. Uh, so, Mark, let's jump into it. What is it? What are we talking about here? Oh, the coccidia uh, are a group of single-celled parasitic organisms. They're generally species-specific, so you can't transfer coccidia from our rabbits, say, to our uh, bearded dragons. There are bearded dragon-specific coccidia. And they uh, have a you know, fecal oral transmission. Their life cycle is uh, through that fecal oral transmission. And they are, as you said, Brendan, a particularly common finding if you look at the stools of any number of uh, bearded dragons. You will undoubtedly come across the uh, the presence of these single celled organisms, and and yeah, you've got to you've got to then make a decision about the clinical situation. Are these organisms that you found in the stool are they likely to be uh, good or bad or indifferent? And then take some action from there. So, what do you find, Brendan? Well, yeah. Number one, I think it's a common a common finding in bearded dragons, and then we have to start distinguishing whether or not it is causing clinical disease in that particular individual or not. And it certainly can, well, it can kill them um, if if they do show clinical signs. So we get everything from no signs at all in some beardies that are that haven't got any other stresses happening or, or conditions happening to to death with them. And the, the classic beardy I suppose that would have the clinical coccidiosis are the ones that are showing ill thrift or ill health from it mark are you know a young bit of dragon that's that's gone to a new home so one that's taken home it's stressed from the move it may have had inappropriate or inadequate husbandry before it went to the new owner um, the new owner may or may not be um, be good with their husbandry and then it comes down with the, some of the clinical signs of coccidiosis there, Mark. So that's how common is it? I think it's pretty very damn common, good. Mark. It's pretty yeah, damn common. So, and what, yeah, you, you, you've mentioned about the actual paras, parasite. It's, you know, it's um, the parasite eggs that oocysts are very resistant and can survive for a fair period of time um, in the environment. So we can get, and then they sporulate after, a length of time um, so we can get what some people call a super infection of them in in captivity where we have that vivarium that the beardy or beardies are enclosed in so we can have a, a rapid build-up and I think that's part of the issue with pet bitter dragons that do show signs of clinical coccidiosis um, it's because they're exposed to such high levels of that that parasite mark um, so 
What are the and signs, think, Mark? Well, I think I was just going to say that um, that that's a useful thing to know because um, while there's no hard and fast correlation between the number of oocysts you see on a faecal uh, examination, if you do see huge, huge numbers of oocysts, um, then you can at least increase your degree of suspicion. Most of the clinical signs are what you were describing before, Brendan, the, the ill-thrift animal, weak, uh, maybe a little bit uh, of weight loss. Those uh, pelvic bones might be pointing out the, the uh, they might not be absorbing all the food that they're eating and so, um, so they uh, don't grow as quickly. They can sometimes show secondary problems like metabolic bone disease. I know we've done uh, a... Uh, podcast on that they often the first sorts of signs that you'll see are things that you would associate with gastrointestinal dysfunction and so they might have diarrhea they might go off their food for periods of time and so those sorts of signs might alert you to um, uh, the gastrointestinal tract as the primary source of the problem and then Obviously, you're going to, amongst the workup that you do, consider a faecal examination. And exactly. That's where exactly. So, as the Americans would say, Mark, it's an NQR on a D <laughs> dragon. So, not quite right or ain't doing right, Mark. Um, have you seen those little acronyms for them? Yes. So, yeah, and that classic one with those youngsters that, 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 the, the, Really classic ones are that, that anorexic youngster that's a poor doer, um, really skinny little bit of dragon that's they're struggling to put on weight or and it's and or it's not eating at all, Mark, and it's just this little runty little bit of dragon there. And exactly right, how do we how do we diagnose it? You've mentioned the fact that we you know the simplest way um, to to pick them up, even though they may shed intermittently um, in in the feces, is doing a fecal flotation with them. And if we have very high numbers, and typically with these ones that have, as you mentioned, the clinical signs often have a massive number, don't they, of yeah. the coccidia, and you put that even a even a, a, a one that you haven't done a fecal concentration float technique, um, you do a fresh prep. You can see fair numbers of them in there, and it, it increases our suspicion that this is a clinical case of coccidiosis. So, uh, I mean, there are, you know, potentially there are other methods there of, you know, um, you could do a fecal, um, you could do a colonic lavage. Uh, I think some places in the world there are sort of PCR um, techniques of, of measuring. Um, we could do a necropsy mark of, <laughs> of the animal. Um, uh, and you then laugh, and you laugh, Brendan, but I have done that because um, there are times when, like you said, they're intermittent shedders and and you can lose animals, um, not see any on those uh, tests, but um, turn up the coccidia in the intestinal lining. We don't often see them get outside the gastrointestinal tract. We do see that in other species, but um, certainly they'll turn up in, in the lining of the small intestine, and, and it sometimes is a post-mortem finding that you find. Yep, absolutely. And as you mentioned, ty typically in other species with coccidia, that you know, the classics that... We're taught at university, 
mark on with, with with a lot of the species we coxed is bloody diarrhea and and we don't necessarily see that we sometimes see it in embedded dragons but more often than not well my my experience anyway with the ones i see is that we don't um it's it's unusual to see the bloody diarrhea with them we can certainly see runny drop-ins but um, compared with some other species with coccidia like for instance some of the birds mark chooks or whatever and, and and other species we see a bloody diarrhea so um don't think just bloody diarrhea with with coccidiosis in these in these beauties um, so what do we do mark i think uh, well you can go into more specifics but i'd sort of summarize it in three things we we keep the animal alive so it's supportive care um with it we clean the environment oh. I'm glad you put it around that way, Brendan, because far too then, often... Yes, and then we treat the parasite. We use yes. an antiparasiticide. So they're the three things. So do you want to... Let, let's jump into number one, Mark. Well, number one is it's really important because it often goes on for some time. The damage these organisms do to the cells that line the intestine may take even several weeks to heal. So just uh, the supportive care, fluid therapy... Maintain maintenance of uh, levels of nutrition, appropriate thermal environments, all the things that we would do to support any patient going through a serious illness. That's the first step with these guys. And just being aware that that gastrointestinal tract might not be functioning as it normally does. And so sometimes the fluid therapy has to take the form of parenteral fluid for a a few days before those cells have had a chance to regenerate the absorptive surfaces of the intestine. And it's perhaps, look, you know, doing diagnostic to see what other things are are going on in that animal. So we might have those secondary infections. We might have secondary organ failure. We might have multiple conditions going on apart from the coccidiosis there. So so we need to look broader, I suppose, as, as far as do we just treat the coccidiosis or is there a whole multitude multitude of things going on in this animal and we may even have to start thinking about euthanasia with some of them fairly early on if they're really severely affected with it well they, so the, we, there definitely has been a couple of cases where even uh, a gamid adenovirus has been a complicating yes. factor in our cases and so you do you really do have to look for those uh comorbidities and and make decisions about outcomes on the basis of the entire animal rather than the one disease yes so we try and keep the animal alive we provide it with supportive care and and parental nutrition and then what do we do with the environment mark oh we sterilize it brendan because of what you said before the uh, persistence of those oocysts in the environment, um, you just about have to switch these animals to a um, denuded enclosure. You can't keep them in their usual enclosure where there's organic material and fecal material remaining. You've got to switch them onto a newspaper base, disposable cardboard box hides, set them up so that the enclosure can be absolutely cleaned and all manner of fecal material removed so there's no chance of that super infection process going. And I find this to be one of the most critical, uh, critically important steps that um, if you are a little bit lackadaisical with your hospital hygiene, 
you know, once the animal goes home, if the people who own the animal are not aware of how important uh, these super infections are, the reinfection with subsequent generations of oocysts, then maybe they don't pay quite as much attention as they do. Why? One question I've got for you, Brendan, I've been uh, often read that prey items like crickets left in the enclosure will feed on organic material, including feces of the bearded dragons, and um, may even concentrate the oocysts and provide an alternate route for that faecal oral transmission and maintain um, an infection. So, so keeping even crickets beyond what the lizard will eat at one sitting in the enclosure has been a thing I've tried to yes. make sure there's no remaining crickets. What it's do you think about that? Scorched earth policy, Mark. <laughs> nuke, yes. nuke it all. No, treat it like a hospital cage there, as, as you said. Uh, news, I usually recommend to the clients just newspaper substrate, change it twice a day at least. Use a decent disinfectant you know obviously the f10 is the one to consider using to clean the enclosure probably every day or two um yeah cardboard hides etc throwing them out regularly um and uh you know it's a it's a bit tricky because we're probably going to stress out that that little lizard that's already stressed out there but we need to try and maximize the chance of limiting the the super infection that's going on there with them so um as well as providing that um supportive care we spoke about at the start with them and what else do we do mark what's the what's the you know what's the overview of the actual anti-parasiticides that we use with them well brendan the key thing here is i depend heavily on toltrazuril because of its availability here in Australia. I know overseas, uh, Ponazuril, its close relative, is probably one of the first things that's used. Um, but, um, but I've had great ses- success with Toltrazuril. Um, I haven't, uh, I know a number of uh, people have asked about the Coccidia stat type medications, so Amprolium or maybe even um, uh, one of the trimethoprim sulfur drugs that have coccidiostat effects but i don't find they uh are up to the job and it sort of makes sense they're not uh the lizard's not um it has clinical disease because it has the organism in its gut and just preventing any new infection may not be enough to get the lizard to the point where it's uh cured so most of the time we're depending on those coccidiocidal drugs toltrazuril or ponazuril Yep, and there's, there is various sort of dose rates being reported and we're not going to obviously um, mention the exact dose rates here anyway because it's a bit pointless. Um, and the good news is, Mark, I find that a reasonably good number of them do respond to the treatment that, um, that those three aspects that we were chatting about. Have you found that? Exactly the same, Brendan. It's one of the... the um the conditions of bearded dragons that if we have the diagnosis correct, we're not worried about comorbidities, they do tend to respond very well to treatment. Yep. Excellent. So prevention, Mark, how do we stop this process happening? Well, I think the key thing there is fastidious attention to uh, cleanliness in the more general enclosure when you don't have a uh, a sick lizard and testing during the quarantine phase. 
and being aware of the presence of those organisms as they come into the enclosure. And finally, I think you, you don't necessarily, those tests that are done so that you're aware of the organism, they don't necessarily trigger a treatment process because it's quite likely that um, a very low number of coccidia form uh, part of the uh, intestinal flora that allows bearded dragons to consume plant material. But you don't want those numbers uh, building up to very, very high levels and then causing the problems that we've described in the clinical patient. Yep, it should be mandatory part of the screening of any bearded dragon and certainly of new bearded dragons, Mark, and ideally people are not, and you know, we've gone through this in previous podcasts, not purchasing animals and popping them in with others and certainly with reptiles, um, that shouldn't be done. But guess what? People do things you tell them not to, don't they? Oh. And do things they shouldn't or they have an enclosure that's, you know, we've spoken about sort of quarantine enclosures before and that a lot of a lot of carers and a lot of clients do do the right thing initially and they do have a quarantine or a hospital cage, but they just can't help filling it up with a new purchase of an animal that they um, happened to see that they couldn't resist a purchasing mark. So, so yes, it should be part of the screening process um, and especially for any new bearded dragon. And, you know, the ideal screening for a new beardy will be a, a health check um, by a veterinarian. It will be a faecal check. It will ideally be that viral testing as well, Mark, um, and perhaps a, a basic blood screen as well if they want to be thorough. I reckon and, that's 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 not like when you say it like that. Some people might say, "Oh, that's excessive," but I don't. I disagree. I think that's the bare minimum you need to do if you've got an animal going into a valuable collection and you want to maintain their health and those not just at quarantine, regularly those examinations need to provide data that inform the things that we do to manage the collection. And when we think that these animals, including bearded dragons, will last many years, um, that in the long run it's, it's money well spent, Mark, money well spent. So... Any final thoughts, Mark, on coccidiosis in bearded dragons? And that's what I, I think coccidia is a great, I was going to say great parasite. It's a great parasite <laughs> yeah. for for new veterinarians and veterinary students and technicians to to look at and to learn about because it's usually pretty damn obvious, isn't it? So if you're training up your techs to um, do faecal flotations and free fecal fresh preps in your clinic it's a it's a great one to look at because it's it, it's good it's it's fun isn't it to see <laughs> such a such a huge number of coccidia and it's exciting um, well that, and, and i think it does lend itself because so often in other species the presence of coccidia any coccidia is of clinical significance. And so you can be sort of, without experience, you can be jumping at any roughly round-looking thing under the microscope and going, oh, my God, that's probably going to be a coccidia. Whereas once you've had the experience of looking at a few Ospora amphibular, amphib amphibular, anyway, the, the bearded dragon one, <laughs> you, you, rec you recognise them straight off the bat and... Uh, and they're a great learning experience for coccidia and other species. 
Yes. I was going to say, well said, Mark. Um, very <laughs> attentive. Well said. Uh, I think with that, we'll talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.